0: Hello, hello everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. This week I am super excited to have my lovely guest on the show, Talita Vornia. Now, Talita is a mum from Australia. So someone that is in my same time zone, which was so easy to, you know, tee up a time to have a conversation with, which was great. And she is a certified fertility awareness educator with postgraduate studies in biomedical science. Focusing on nutrition science and reproductive endocrinology. Talita runs a plant-based food and women's health blog and Instagram page called Hazel and Cacao. And this is how I first heard about Toledo years ago and followed her page ever since because she says shares such amazing information on women's hormonal health and Food. So, you know, she is dedicated to educating women about plant-based nutrition and hormone balance. So this conversation, we dive into all things female hormones. We talk about diet and lifestyle, about plant-based diets, going gluten-free, chocolate, the benefits of chocolate and why we do need that in our diet. And so many other things, you know, again, that are important to know about our female hormones and what we can do to really optimize them so that we can live a happy and full life without things like PMS and all those pesky things that uh, often interrupt. So let's have a listen in to our conversation. Hi, I'm Kate Boyle and welcome to the Mind Movement Health Podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you health information from diet and lifestyle, movement and nutrition. My aim is to bring you bite-sized pieces of information that you can instigate into your everyday life to change your health. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Mind Movement Health Podcast. I'm super excited today to have another wonderful guest on the show. Talita, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, happy to be here. Well, I'm really super excited cuz I said to um I connected with Toledo via Instagram, but I've been following you for a long time, like years, I would say. <laughs> um, you know, your all your food photography is beautiful, your recipes are amazing. Um, the information you share on hormonal health is fantastic. And so, I was really excited to get you on cuz hormone health is one of those it's a really big topic. More and more people are speaking about it na- nowadays, but There's not really any woman I don't know that's not affected by some range of, you know, hormonal health. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, But can you share a little bit more with your listeners about who you are and what you do if they don't know?
1: Yeah, so um, I actually find this hard to answer because I feel like I'm in a bit of a transitional place in life. Um, Before I had my kid, I worked as a dental hygienist for over 10 years. Um, And then I like I hated that. So then when I had my kids, like during that time, I was suffering with my sort of health hormone problems. And that's really where my attention was focused. So I decided after I had my baby not to go back into that. And I am like Still sort of gaining qualifications in um, women's hormone health and nutrition, which is the space I want to be in. Um, so I'm now a certified fertility awareness instructor, and I did go back to uni I think last year, maybe, maybe before that, I don't know. <laughs> I did some postgrad studies in biomedical science um, that focused on reproductive endocrinology and nutrition science. Um, but like this is still the beginning for me so I plan to do a lot more studies in the future and um, yeah take it from there and of course I have my food blog Hazel and Cacao which I've had for many years it started off just as a food blog and I've transitioned it more into women's health um, hormone health sort of area now and I know I know
0: there's a story about and behind naming it Hazel and Cacao can you share that with listeners too?
1: Yeah, so, yeah, like as I said, it started off just as a food blog and um, I just looked for, I hate coming up with names, <laughs> and I just looked for a cute name that really was just, I saw a lot of people just going like their favourite food combinations. So, to me, it was hazelnuts and chocolate, which is hazel and cacao, which was, comes from Nutella, and that used to be my biggest obsession and I used to eat a whole jar of Nutella, uh, you know, at that time of the month, <laughs> So that's, that's literally why I named it and I didn't know that I would transition into women's health at the time and when I did, I did play around with changing the name but, again, I absolutely hate coming up with names and I haven't come up with anything else and I thought um, – it still fits because it was a PMS craving, and I still share mostly food content, so I'm keeping it for now. But that's the story. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was to say most women uh, like chocolate
0: and Nutella and all of it too. Yeah. So I think it's a pretty relatable story as well. Yeah. Um, I haven't. I never grew up with Nutella in my household, so I never developed um, you know, a flavor for wanting Nutella. But definitely oh. as I've Gotten older, I've really included a lot more hazelnuts and cacao, and I've made my own at home, which my girls um, love. But yes, I did miss out on that sort of Nutella journey growing up. up.
1: Yeah, oh, I, yes, no, I definitely was on it from a young age. Yeah, you're lucky, you're lucky (laughs) because it's quite addictive.
0: Now, I want to segue and ask you about, you know, a lot of the information you share is scientific-based. It's backed by studies. And I wanted to ask you why that's so important for you to share. I know um, being a nutritionist myself and being in that health field, when I'm looking for information, that's what I seek out because for me, you know, that's backed by real evidence. We know it works. And I think that's really important to find. But I think as just, you know, a general person that's listening in that may be trying to find some information online about health and hormones, there's so much information out there that it's sometimes hard to sort through. So I wanted to know why you were so passionate about sharing that evidence-based information.
1: Look, I mean, I think it's it is my training, like in the nutrition side, I'm not a nutritionist, but um you know, in my postgrad, that's how that's what I was taught to do. I was taught to interpret nutrition data. Um, but I think the main reason for for it for me is that there is just so much confusion out there. And I've had so many girls and friends you know on on my Instagram to say that they're actually anxious, like they actually have anxiety over the amount of information, they just don't know what to believe. And unfortunately, I think even science itself, like I'm just going to validate these people that um, also find it hard to believe in science because science, you know, people have um, mistreated science a lot of time and we have a lot of people online making claims based on science that aren't true or have ulterior motives or whatever. So it, it is extremely confusing. But I think I think for me, the more I got to understand science and the more that I understood the hierarchy of the evidence, um, the less and less confused I became because um I don't think science can ever give us black and white answers, which is unfortunate because I'm a black and white person and I wish it could. Mm -hmm. But if you have enough information over a particular topic, like if there's been enough research done and I think we're finally getting there with nutrition, and I've heard a lot of other people say that, that we're finally sort of getting to a place with nutrition where we have enough for the evidence to paint a picture, a direction, some foundations. Um, and you know that's not going to give us absolutes but I think it's enough to ground you in something that you can hold on to to know that it is truthful or heading towards truth and to me it helps cut the anxiety and the confusion and I just want to offer that to other women as well yeah um, yeah well and
0: yeah, it does. And yeah. I like the word foundations because I think you're really right. When you are looking at what's right for you, it's often very different to what suits your friend or your mum or your sister or whatever it may be. So having that evidence-based information just to build some basic foundations around, you know, what you're eating or what type of exercise or ways to deal with stress, I think can be really helpful. And then it's, you know, it's often just trying new things or experimenting with other things that um, may be helpful. Again, if there's evidence-based information that can help you sway to sort of, oh, I'll try that because there is some back. but it might not work for you because it all is very individual.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, I have that uh, issue with um, the hormonal contraception that I was on because you look at all the studies and it's all so positive And like, you don't understand that they take, like the studies report an average of the person and there's people that do better and there's people that do worse. That doesn't mean you're not accounted for in the study. It just means that It doesn't sound like it because you're not part of the average, you know. Um, But, like, that's how, you know, there's so much individuality and and that's why, especially with nutrition, we all have different tastes and preferences and it's great. Like, just focus on the foundations and then be you and experiment with what works for you and that's good. Like, that's a good thing that there's um, diversity and difference and,
0: yeah. Yeah, and I think it's good that there is a lot more access to information now. We've talked about on the podcast Before that you know if you go to your doctor they'll recommend x because that's what they've either been trained in or maybe they've got a family member that they know and we'll just say you know someone comes in with a bad back and they say oh you should try yoga because it's worked for them or you know but there are other things, you know, it might be Pilates or it might be strength training or it might be, and they might not suggest that. So that's where the onus is on you to actually research, look into things and not always rely on, you know, your health
1: professional because they do try, but they don't know everything. That's right. That's right. I completely agree with that. And yeah. And I think so much of my journey is also just learning to trust yourself as well. And I think people with, Previous health traumas that or chronic health conditions that can be very very difficult to do and it's so much easier to just think I'm flawed there's something wrong with me I'll I'll give that responsibility to someone else but no one can do it for you like you've got to you can base it off other people you can base it off the evidence but in the end it's all up to you that's yeah. it and ask questions because I always say to people if you're unsure
0: like there's no silly question. Ask questions. And if they can't answer it, then find somebody that can answer those questions. Like, don't be scared because at the end of the day, it's your body and you need to be in control. But I think sometimes we are, we do just go, oh, no, they're the expert, they'll know best. But sometimes mm-hmm. they don't know everything. Yep. That's right. Now, I know a lot of your recipes are plant based, and you've got a new uh, book that's out that's around plant based, but what's your definition of plant based? Because I know it can vary in the sense that some professionals say, you know, plant-based in that majority of a diet should be plants, but then you can add in some fish and meat and, and other forms of protein. And then other people are like completely vegan and it needs to be fully plant-based. So where do you lie on that sort of spectrum of going plant-based?
1: Um, I sort of lie on the spectrum of, uh, of the way that I see uh, the scientific data interprets plant-based. So to me, it is sort of any diet that has, 80 to 85% plants and above would be considered plant-based. So, um, if you're if you're in that ballpark and and I think it's more about focusing on a variety of plant foods because you can be fully vegan and eat no animal products and have a very poor variety of plants in your diet. And I guarantee you, an omnivore that's eating both, it's eating more plants than you will be healthier. You know, so it's more about focusing um, on. A wider diversity of plants, from vegetables, grains, you know, like all of that, and that and that can allow for some animal products in the in the diet as well. Um, so yeah, I just I do think we have some evidence saying that as soon as you're getting um, sort of a bar, sorry, sorry, like more than twenty percent animal-based um, products, we're starting to see lower health outcomes. So that's one when we're saying plant-based that's really what it means. So it's like Mediterranean can fall into that, pescatarians, vegetarians, vegans, omnivores can fall into that. Um, Yeah, it's just, that's how I view it. Yeah. Yeah. And why is plant-based
0: so beneficial for women's hormonal health?
1: Yeah. So I, there's a few reasons. Um, I think that, Probably the big one is that it is it is so anti-inflammatory and the reason for that is because, as I said, it does focus on a wider variety of whole plant foods and um, whole plant foods have fibre and fibre and, and all these other beautiful phytonutrients that are we know are amazing for our health and that's really good for the gut and the gut is sort of the seat of our immune system, so it's really going to help bring down inflammation and so then it's going to help... Um, really bring down those inflammatory hormonal conditions like you know all the estrogen dominant type conditions like your endometriosis and your fibroids and you know even pms and and that sort of thing um other reasons are that it actually is a very nutritious choice so i think vegan diets in particular get a lot of um what's it called criticism for being you know lacking in nutrients but uh, there was a study that came out and I have mentioned this study all the time that sort of compared all of the dietary patterns that we have at the moment and none of them are good enough. Like none of them are actually hitting all of our needs. Um, and, but what we're finding is the more and more plants we add in, the, the more nutrients we get as well. And um, I, think, I think that's actually the main reason I decided to go plant-based many years ago because I was very depleted um, and I just felt like, that is how I was going to get more nutrients in. Again, focusing on the whole plant foods, none of this processed stuff. Um, other reasons are, you know, we have good evidence showing that it's pretty good for fertility and also for women transitioning into menopause, especially with the menopause um, diets that are high in phytoestrogens as well. Yeah. So those are, those are the top reasons that come to my mind, yeah. <laughs> All amazing reasons. It's
0: just I think it's always nice to hear from, you know, other people in the nutrition field why it's so important. But you bring up a really good point about diversity too because I think, you know, a lot of people tend to – Go back to the sort of regular meals that they have on hand. They don't try adding in, you know, lots of different veggies, or maybe they're not familiar with how to cook them. Um, I know myself just adding in more garlic, onions, chili, ginger. Um, really simple, gives so much more flavour don't you know they don't take a lot of you know time to cook them or anything but that can just give so much more flavor to your meals so much more you know anti-inflammatory properties antibacterial properties um and super simple to add in and there's like four extra sort of veggies you can add into your day but you know what are your sort of tips and trips when somebody comes to you and they're sort of like oh I want to increase my diversity but I just don't know what to do
1: you know I think a really simple tip is to just switch up the colours of the same food so you you know instead of just having brown rice all the time try red rice try wild rice try black rice like that even the, the colour profile increases diversity or the or one thing I say with like quinoa is instead of just getting the white quinoa I get the tri-colored quinoa because you've got the different colours in there that's a good way to increase um diversity um, it's spices and herbs, just of flavouring your foods with spice, like you were saying before, and another, like that all counts. Um, yeah, I don't know. And, well, and I think for me personally, what's helped is learning to cycle sync because if you can, you know, sync your foods to. I think it's been one of the best things that I've done as a woman to help me get di- diversity at different parts of the month. So like overall, I'm gaining. Yeah, more plants in, knowing what I need at certain times of the month will help me reach out for different foods. Um, yeah, that's probably the main tips. I, I think I've heard that, that people are saying now that you need about 30 different plant foods minimum a week for that diversity that's actually not that hard to do. Like I, I hit well above that now. And I hit well above that, even though I still have my regular foods that I cook on repeat. Because um, you do like as a, as a mom and family, you, you need it's those it's foods. It's easy. <laughs> um, so, Yeah, that's right. So maybe just like, I'm not telling anybody to get rid of those foods, because I don't know what I would do without them. Like we need our easy meals. But you know, maybe allowing yourself to be creative every once in a while and um, just trying trying different things. Like, I think that's the whole thing with my blog. Like, that's how I started. That was my aim because I was eating nothing. Like, actually nothing. I had very very poor diversity in my diet, and that was my way starting my food blog to keep myself accountable to try new foods. Um, and yeah, and it was creative and fun and yeah. That's that's what I got for that question. <laughs> Yeah, well, I was going to say I often start counting in my head
0: like throughout the week how many veggies I've had Um, and yes, I've heard 30 is like yes. the key many times, Um, but I will often count to and be like, oh, how many have I had this week? Okay, I've had like 24. So what else can I, you know, add to the shopping list yes. or whatever, which is probably just a thing like not many people do, but I know that I sometimes I count it out just out of curiosity Um, because if you've got a few foods that have been on repeat or like this morning, I I've um, just made like a carrot soup, which is why, you know, fresh in my head that it's got ginger and, um,
1: you know, chilli
0: and all that lovely stuff in it. But I will have that a few days of the week for lunch. So then, you know, the end of the week, I'm thinking, oh, well, what else can I add in now that's different to the foods that I've had throughout the start of the week? So um, I think that diversity is a a good thing. And just starting simple and adding in those different colours is a really great way to start with. Now, a lot of your recipes are also gluten-free. So I know from, you know, an anti-inflammatory point of view, going gluten-free is fantastic for the gut. Is that the main reason that you include those recipes or are there other sort of reasons that you decided to do a lot of them or all of them gluten-free as well? Hi, everyone. I'm interrupting this podcast very quickly to let you know that Shah's five-day business reboot is happening this week, starting Monday, the 10th of October. So if you haven't signed up, it's not too late. Head on over and sign up now. Now, this is a challenge with a twist and it's totally free. It's aimed to bring the fire back in your belly and into your business. So join Shah and me for a total reset. You'll get clear, focused, and on track to build the life and business you actually want, not just the one you've got now. So if you're ready to take it up a step, if you're ready to really make that money that you want, to love the business that you have, and really focus on building it for the future for you and your family, then join this free challenge now. Head on over to the show notes and click the link to join us.
1: They're not all gluten free. So, I will say that yes, I have a lot of gluten free recipes on my blog. And the main reason for that is because um, if you do gluten free properly, not the processed way, it's going to add in more diversity. Honestly, like, you know, otherwise everyone's just going to be sticking to wheat as their whole grain. And there's so many other beautiful whole grains we could be eating um, that are gluten free. And, again, it's, it's, for me, it is about adding in that diversity. I am personally not gluten-free. Um, I also have a lot of gluten-free desserts because people ask for them, especially in the desserts. I think it's also expected. I will say here um, I have been tormented over the issue of gluten for many years because, personally, I don't react. I don't have any problems. Like, I have been fearful of gluten because I have heard so much Stuff about it and I remember sitting in front of a gluten steak I don't know many years ago I don't know if you know what that is but it's basically like a it's like a fake veggie meat made out of seitan which is a high gluten flour and I was sitting in front of it so anxious going I have to react this is pure gluten right here like it's <laughs> gonna mess me up and absolutely nothing happened <laughs> so I just don't I don't have a reaction to it and um So that got me very curious into understanding why so many people do, why some people like myself don't, and I did go down the research. um, Yeah, I've been researching for many years, so I can share what I found if you'd like. Yeah, sure. Uh, So I think think we'll start with the main problem with gluten-containing foods is the form in which we eat them, which is they're highly processed, they're white um you know we've got our white breads our white pastas our cakes our pastries all made with white flour um that is not going to be good for anybody you know that's there's no fiber there there's not a lot of nutrition it is high gluten as well when you take out that fiber just you know it just the concentration goes up and that i mean we know for various reasons that that's not healthy and i think for the majority of the population that's probably the main source of gluten that they're gaining which is the getting sorry they're getting the processed white stuff like that's the main source that we're getting in our diet and that's going to make everyone not feel great right. um we do have other issues with it with the pesticides that we use on our wheat um some countries more than others and we know that these pesticides uh, we know now that they can interfere with the gut microbiome and create problems there as well but in terms of gluten itself If you are celiac, absolutely you need to avoid gluten for life. Um, If you think you are reacting to gluten, you should go get yourself tested for celiac disease and just rule that out. Um, If you're not celiac, there is such a thing as non celiac gluten sensitivity. But I think what people don't realise is that at most, celiacs account for about 1% of the population. Non celiac gluten sensitivity accounts for about 6% of the population and the rest should be okay with gluten. And I think that's a little bit shocking for most people because we all know people that really don't do well with gluten-containing food. Um, And so we're like, well, why is that? Besides what I've just said about, you know, the form of gluten-containing grains that we're eating is just not healthy, which is refined. Um, So thankfully for me, (laughs) this study came out that answered my question and the study took people that were um, self-reported to be non-celiac gluten sensitive, so they they believed they had a gluten intolerance, and they gave them, split them into two groups and they gave them two bars, one that had gluten in it to eat and one that had the gluten removed. And the group actually did better on the gluten-containing bar than the non-gluten-containing bar digestively. And so then the question is, all right, so if you're not reacting to the gluten, what else is it in the wheat, the rye and the barley that people are reacting to? Yeah. And so what they found is that there's a group of fibres called fructans, which are one of the FODMAP fibres. And this is where a lot of people have the digestive issues with gluten. And we have a lot of people that have, that, that don't, you know, people with the IBS, it's a very common thing to react to. So what this has said to me and what a lot of the gut professionals that I'm following are saying now is that gluten may have been um, blamed a little bit unjustly for what the fructans are doing, you know. But the thing with, unlike celiac, where you do need to avoid gluten for life, with the fructans you can actually work on your gut to help you digest it better. And over time you may never be able to eat this, you know, a lot, but over time, you you can you know repopulate your gut with the bacteria that it needs to digest the fructans and heal the gut and reintroduce it into your diet. And I think if we look at um, overall health outcomes. Um, We have some studies that show, particularly for things like diabetes, studies that come into my mind, and diabetes, that people that avoid gluten and don't need to actually have poorer health outcomes than the ones that include gluten. So Mm. if you can tolerate gluten, you're not celiac, you're not whatever, um, work on your gut health, and if you can, then consume again that variety of foods those whole grains the whole wheat whole spelt whole barley whole rye do that um and yeah and it, you, it may be better off for you if you can yeah did that make it yeah, yeah. Make it controversial No, but it's really interesting
0: because I always say when I'm working with clients, too, that going gluten-free, it's like everything. It is very individual. It depends on how you react to it. Um. I myself can tolerate gluten. It's one of the things I haven't had issues with, um, which is great. But I still, a lot of the time opt to go for things that are gluten-free. Like you said before, the diversity. So, you know, even stuff that I make at home, like I might make chocolate brownies, but I'll keep it gluten-free because I can add in things like almond meal and hazelnut meal, which I know I'm going to get a lot more nutrients from than just having white flour in it. Um, So, yeah, I definitely personally eat gluten but I will go for say a sourdough bread over a a normal like I don't eat white bread um but you know things like that so I often say to people include it if you can but if you can tolerate it and it's um you know a better form of gluten rather than a processed donut or a biscuit or something that you know is terrible then do that if you can
1: yes I'm exactly the same. Sourdough when I can, and when I'm cooking, especially in my desserts, why not? Like, why would you use the white flour? Like, there's so many other more nutritious options you can use, and it's adding to that diversity. And again, like, I think that's probably the biggest problem. We're eating too much of it. Like, Mm. there's so many other good things that we could be adding in. Um, So, I'm honestly exactly the same as you. So, I still eat the gluten, but I like to vary the diet. So, I'm including as much. Of diversity as I can from other grains.
0: Yeah, and I think it can change as well throughout. Your lifetime, like anything, um, I don't tolerate dairy very well now, mm. but I had 30 years of tolerating it completely yes. fine. So you yes. know, it depends on your gut health. It depends on what stage of life you're in. Uh, you know, all these different things come into play. So um, a client w- had recently; she had a lot of skin rashes flaring up, um, and she was did not want to give up dairy. It was like, no, I don't want to give it up. I love my dairy, and I'm like. Just tr- two weeks, just give it up for two weeks. Um, A week later, she's like, oh, it's already cleared up a whole lot. <laughs> Yeah, And it's yeah. like, yeah, and it might be, you know, I'm, I said to her, it, it doesn't mean that you can't ever have dairy again, but maybe, you know, until we can get this settled down, until we can get your, you know, gut bacteria great and, and work on all those things and then you might be able to add it back in in smaller amounts, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's going to be a trial and, and error thing and, again, everybody's different. So, um, yeah. yeah, I do think it's interesting. There are a lot of experts out there that say you should be gluten-free and you should be dairy-free. Yeah. um. But there are different percentages of the population that can tolerate these things. And I think that's where, you know, working it out for yourself and going back to that sort of, you know, we are saying before, trying, experimenting, individual, ask questions, but then really listen to your body is the best thing that you can do.
1: And I just did want to say one thing since we're on women's health and the gluten. If you have another autoimmune disease, so if you have thyroid, Hashimoto's or whatever whatever other ones there are, there's a much bigger link with people that have autoimmune disease also having celiac disease or just non-gluten, you know, the other one, the gluten intolerance. Um, And, and again, it comes to the gut because most autoimmune diseases have a gut component, leaky gut component in there. Um, So if that's you, then definitely be on high alert that it may be more probable for you as a woman that you may have issues with both gluten and dairy. Um, and other things. So I did. I just didn't want to say that because there are. I mean, I don't have autoimmune disease, so it's not something. You know, it's probably why. But again, that again can change in life because we know thyroid conditions, for example, they can pop up later on in life. They pop up a lot around perimenopause. They pop up after pregnancy. So things can change for sure. Yeah, and it is,
0: you do bring up that great point because the other thing is too. You may have an autoimmune condition. You may not feel like you have any allergy to gluten, but you may have, you know, low energy levels, brain fog, you know, pain, whatever it may be, and just going off the gluten, reducing the inflammation in the body might mean less joint pain or whatever it is. So, yeah, it's a, I, I will often say that to clients too that, um, it's, yes, it's recommended. If you can do it, definitely experiment with it. Mm. Sure. Now, chocolate, because we have to talk about chocolate because it's one of my favourite foods. Um But I was curious to know, when it comes to the health benefits, what do you recommend is the percentage that you need, you know, of the dark chocolate to be eating to um, get the health benefits and sort of steer clear of the, you know, everyone's like, oh, it needs to be at least 70% or I've heard 80% or as high as 85 or even 90%, which it starts to get bitter. So I almost think there's a almost that trade-off with, you know, having all these nutrients and it being great for you, but then having the enjoyment of the, the experience and the taste as well.
1: Mm. Um, I mean, the studies that I focus on, you know, that come to my head are basically the women's health ones. So I'm I'm not really sure if there's other studies that I haven't looked at that will say like 70%. I have heard 70% and above a lot. What I have seen for women in particular around period pain is 60% and above. Um, So, yes, you, you can get, you can, you know, you'll probably get more benefits the darker you go, but I personally love an 85%. Like, that's my (laughs) favourite. But I know that's – and that and it took me a while to work up to that because I definitely used to be a milk chocolate lover. So I worked up to that slowly. And I just think it's good to know that you don't need to go that dark in order to get the benefits. And I think the darker you go, you also run into the problems of – it can be a little bit too stimulating for some women as well. And some women with, like, progesterone issues and um, migraines can get – too stimulated by the very dark chocolate. So maybe start with the 60%, knowing that it'll give you some benefits, and just find what works for you within that um range right. between 60% and 100. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's good because I do like around the 70 um, and I cook a lot with
0: the 70, um, yes. that dark chocolate, just because it gives you that, like it tastes like chocolate. As far as you mean, we don't eat desserts out and stuff very often anymore because it just tastes like sugar. It doesn't have that depth of flavour to it that you get if you cook with a, a 70% um chocolate. So I know from sort of, okay. yeah my uh experience that's what I prefer and stuff as well um now if there's somebody that's listening in and they're like yeah I'm dialing in my diet and I'm trying to reduce inflammation in my body and you know I've done a lot with my food do you suggest other things for women that they should focus on around their hormone health that can sort of help to settle those hormones back down is it around around you know might be exercise or stress is usually a really big one and stuff as well
1: uh, I think for sure it's going to be stress, mindset, trauma, um, you know, all the, the psychological stuff. I, I think I think it's probably a bigger predictor of hormone balance than food itself. I you know, I think with hormones you've got the you know mind down approach and the body up approach, and for me the food is the body up approach kind of thing. But um, our our endocrine system is an extension of our nervous system. So if that's one's out of balance, it's very difficult. Some women have very robust hormones, but I'm going to say most don't. Like most, if you've got some sort of psychological stress in your life, um to you know just too much too much cortisol and adrenaline from whatever the cause may be, over exercising, too much caffeine, um, anything like that, it it can and will throw your hormones out of whack. Um, and I would also say, uh, blood sugar balance is a big one because again, our, our hormones are like, they run in a hierarchy and our insulin, insulin and cortisol trump estrogen and progesterone. Um, so yeah, I would definitely stress, I would yeah. say. And I know from some of the research
0: I've done that intermittent fasting, because that seems to be the thing that lots of people always ask about. And there are different guidelines around, you know, again, if you've got an autoimmune condition, might not be the best thing to be doing. Or um, if you're having a lot of hormone issues or during your menstrual phase, um, what do you usually sort of talk with
1: clients around
0: intermittent fasting and their hormones as well?
1: Look, I think, I think. Um, intermittent fasting can be good we do have a lot of uh, you know really positive evidence around intermittent fasting but I think it's important for women to remember that the vast majority of that evidence is on men Mm -hmm. and on menopausal women um, that are no longer cycling so again with intermittent fasting it comes back to cortisol and adrenaline because if we are in starvation mode for too long. Like if we fasted for too long, your cortisol will go up to bring up your blood sugar. And again, if your cortisol goes up too high, it will have downstream effects on your um, on your hormones. So, I think I uh, as a fertility awareness educator, I have seen women completely lose their cycles their cycles become longer they cease to ovulate and then they yeah they can lose their cycles simply because they're not getting the energy in and their cortisol is too high so I think as women you need to be a lot more careful definitely don't really do it in the luteal phase uh, when we need extra calories that's a little bit and our blood sugar is so unstable anyway in in the luteal phase so if you're gonna do it stick to the follicular phase and And it's important to remember that women do much better with shorter fasting windows than men. So I think 14 hours is considered maximum for women, whereas men can go 16 to 18 hours. Um, And personally, I don't like the way that the majority of people do. I know there's lots of different ways to do intermittent fasting, but I would say the most common way is to have a late breakfast or skip breakfast and just go straight into lunch. Um, that, That, I mean, that's... That's going sort of against your natural body clock (laughs) Um, because our cortisol and adrenaline is highest in the morning. Morning. And if we, yeah, that's right. And then uh, that's what people do. They have caffeine. They raise it up even higher and then they don't eat, which means that they're going to screw up their blood sugar and raise it up even higher. And so it's much gentler and easier to sort of skip the evening meal or have it much earlier and have your you know the fasting window start earlier in the night then extend into into like the morning time i don't know if i'm communicating yeah. properly yes. well i do that like cuz
0: we don't i don't intermittent fast but definitely no. since having kids we have dinner earlier like when you've got yeah. kids they don't wait to have yeah. dinner later so we might have dinner around 6pm we'll finish like yes. maybe say 645 And then I probably, you know, in the next morning, generally I don't have breakfast till about 8am because I'll get up in the sixes, but I like to move my body, get all the kids stuff ready, do their lunches for school, and then I'll have breakfast before I take them. So just normally without even trying, I'm doing around a 13 hour fast anyway. I'm not actually skipping a meal at all i've just sort of narrowed down that sort of eating period so i think that can work really well i think a lot of people sort of fall into that trap in the evening of snacking it's the you know you're sitting by the tv and you're having some popcorn you're going to have a few more squares of chocolate and you know that's where you know you can just sort of start to lose track maybe of how much you're actually taking in. Um, and that's when you're obviously going to be eating a lot later and then having a shorter window before eating again. So um, I totally agree with everything um, that you're saying and mm-hmm. that shorter window period for women um, and there not being enough studies on women because it's mostly men and definitely not enough studies to utilising the different um, stages of our cycle and intermittent fasting <laughs> and things. So um, again, I always say it's a very individual thing, but you can get the effects of it without skipping a meal if you're just eating that little bit earlier in the evening meal.
1: And that's how I do it too. Exactly the same. I will have dinner around 6 and get up at, and, and have breakfast around 8. So, um, And that works quite well. And, and I do start to feel it though. Like I can feel if I'm not eating by 8. I'll feel my adrenaline go up and I'll start to get a bit like, oh, not not good. Um, so, yeah, we need to eat breakfast to bring down that cortisol. Uh, and it's just so much safer. Like, if, if you're doing it for weight loss, um, your body around 8 p.m. at night goes in, it switches into con- con- conservation mode. So then, like, <clears throat> I can't remember the exact stats, but they're saying the same meal if you were to have it at breakfast compared to like after eight o'clock at night, it could have double the impact on your blood glucose at nighttime because your body is trying to conserve as much of that energy as possible. So that's actually like not not doing you favours for for weight loss. Um yeah. I just it's just switching it. Like just if you just have that, you know, don't eat late at night and eat breakfast in the morning. Um, it's definitely gentler for women. Yeah. Yeah. It's just sometimes breaking those habits can be a little bit harder,
0: the <laughs> snacking habits when you're watching TV or a movie or something. Yeah. Now, what's the one thing that you kind of just wish women knew about their hormone health? Like that just, you know, it's a fact that really every woman needs to know and maybe they don't know or would never sort of, you know, I, I kind of feel like almost we were done a bit of a disservice in the sense that female you know hormones and stuff there's a lot to it but I don't really feel like anybody ever explained any of it or how you could utilize your cycle it wasn't until I was a lot older and I think that information would have been really useful when I was a teenager you know starting to get your period and and trying to work out your cycle and stuff I think that would have been useful for me anyway
1: oh yeah there definitely isn't um much in information it's it's getting there it's getting like so when I when I was struggling with my health issues this is almost 15 years ago now that when I was really bad there was nothing there was no one on social media talking about anything um I made some decisions based literally on studies off women in menopause thinking that if I can you know because there's just nothing because for so long in the research a cycling woman has been considered you know it's too much of a variable the fluctuating hormone so they'd rather just do men and menopausal women and it is changing slowly um uh yeah i don't but in terms of what i wish women knew i don't i i just always say what i've already said that i i wish women knew that their hormones are an extension of their nervous system and that you're not you're not gonna get better just with diet alone. It takes a lot more than that it takes um, it, it takes dealing with those traumas. it takes your mindset it, it's all of that like for me, I had such a severe anxiety disorder like very very bad and and I also wasn't eating so so the eating part was a huge aspect for me in getting better. Um, but it's still, was only 50 percent of the equation the other 50 percent came from mindset and and working on that anxiety and dealing with that trauma and that took that took a long time that took a long long time and um I think that's probably another thing I want to say I feel like a lot of people expect that that I can't we see so many books out there that go you know fix your hormones in 12 weeks and I know that's a marketing thing that publishers want to do but it just doesn't work that way I I think women need to know that it takes a long time it took me probably seven years to get to a good place and then I had a child and then I had another hormone because <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, things are constantly changing so don't expect quick results like just be in it for the long haul yeah yeah and can you? I know your new book only just
0: came out recently, so can you share with us a little bit more about your new book as well?
1: Yeah. So it's called Eating for Hormone Balance: A Plant-Based Guide. Um, it covers a lot of the topics that we spoke about here. I did want to I did want to um, write this book myself because. I did have a publisher reach out to me a couple of years ago, and they wanted to put me into this whole exactly what I said before: come up with some sort of plan in six weeks or 12 weeks or whatever that's going to guarantee that women can fix their hormones um, if they just follow this thing. And I just don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think that's a bit wrong um, because I can't guarantee that for anyone. It took me a lot longer than that, and so I really just wanted to write this book. In a way where it was going to give women as much of information as they could about how to eat for your hormones. So it's covered all the confusing topics, macronutrients, micronutrients, things like intermittent fasting and gluten and dairy and um, you know all of these foundational things for hormones. And that's really what I wanted it to do: create sort of a, a foundation, and then have the recipes as inspiration, um, because. Yeah, like we were saying before, it's up to you. So I'm I I want that book to give you the information that you need that you can take and apply to your life in a way that's going to work for you. I'm not going to give you a plan that's going to guarantee your hormones will be fixed in however amount of time. Um, yeah, it's really just about I really just wanted to educate um and inspire women to take control, and that's what my book is there. It's got 60 60, over 60 recipes, a cycle synced um, for all the different phases. And I think it's really pretty. I think my husband did a great job on, on designing the book with me with the photography. And, yeah, it's available on Amazon at the moment. Yeah, well that's amazing. And I think you're right. I think it's, you know,
0: women just owning that they need to, you know, do something and taking inspiration. I think when you see those sort of plans and paths and things, I think they're great for inspiration. I think you should take from them what can work for you or ideas that can work for you. Mm -hmm. But from the creators point of view on the other side, it's very hard to produce anything and say that if you do X, Y, and Z, you will get x y and z results because Mm -hmm. as we've sort of said this whole podcast everybody is so different so you can use the foundations to try to get there but you're going to have to tweak things along the way and if you have a hiccup happen you know um, a trauma happen and you're only on six week six of week 12 well you know what I mean it's going to throw everything and change everything so I think that those sort of plans and things can be good as long as you're looking at them for the inspiration and for the a guide as such but not thinking if I do this I will look like that lady on instagram because it just doesn't happen that way
1: (laughs) Yeah. yeah no and again for me like it was such a long long journey for me uh i just yeah it's really just about that it's just like empowering women to take um their hormones into you know their control you've got the foundations there um yeah take responsibility and 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 do something um that works for you yeah Now, if there's one, you know, piece of health advice that you
0: could leave listeners, that they could, you know, finish listening to this and go, yep, Toledo was amazing. She had so much fantastic information. I'm going to step away and do something right now to help my hormonal health. What would it be?
1: Wow. (laughs) It could be something really little. It doesn't have to be big. I'm just gonna say, and I, I don't know I, get, I can have like three or four things like little things that I could say. I don't know why I find these questions the most difficult. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, there's so many things. there's so many, there's so many little things I could say that you could do right now. Um, but I think probably the biggest thing that's gonna move the needle for most women is magnesium. I'm not gonna like I can't say it's not gonna work for everyone, but I think it will work for the majority. And it's just like one of those it's just one of those things. This is why chocolate's so good for women, because it's so high in magnesium. Like if you look at that, the, the vast majority of the health effects of chocolate is because of the magnesium content. Not only that, the polyphenols and all that as well, but um yeah, I think magnesium seems to be that life changing thing for many women and their hormones. So that's the one I've chosen to go for. I could have said a lot of other things too. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, I love it because we haven't actually really talked a lot about magnesium itself on the podcast. Um, we've briefly brought it up. Different guests have brought it up as something to take in that, but yeah. Um, yeah I use magnesium a lot I take magnesium I've got a magnesium spray for like muscle recovery um, that I squirt in my bath and stuff like that too so um, I'm definitely a big advocate of magnesium and I know it's one of those nutrients that um, we don't get enough of even though it is in a lot of foods you know soils are depleted um, and there are 200 different forms of types of magnesium or whatever. Like there are so many that do different things and help us in different ways. So, yeah, I love that you suggested magnesium.
1: I, I, I do the topical oil, oil as well. Um, that one was life. I find that that one works really well for because if you've got gut issues, you might struggle with an oral one. Um, yes, you do need yeah. to be careful with how much you take. <laughs>
0: Um, but yeah, and I think, you know, even for anxiousness and calming and sleep um, and muscle recovery, the oil and that or the spray works really well too. Mm. Amazing. Yes. So, where can listeners reach out and connect with you? Okay,
1: so by far, the pretty much the only place I'm on all the time is Instagram. So, my handle is at hazel underscore and underscore cacao. Um, that's it like I have a Facebook but really I don't use it I just share from <laughs> I just share from my Instagram straight to my Facebook and I have my website as well um, which is www.hazelandcacao.com. and that's it I'm not really anywhere else I'm not on TikTok I'm not on Twitter that's that's where you can find me Yeah but it's hard to keep up email. with it all <laughs> <laughs> That's right okay. Um, and
0: I know your book is linked on your website too. So for listeners that yes. are interested, um, I'll include the link in the show notes too. So listeners to are about to click the show notes and, um, yeah, head to um, Teleta's website to grab their book too.
1: Yes, it's, it's difficult to find a universal link. It is available internationally. Um, I'm just sharing the Australian link for now. But if, yeah, still working on finding like a universal link that will just take people to the Amazon in their region. Um, But, yeah, you can just search for the title of the book in Amazon and it will pop up in your region. It is available internationally, print and digital, whatever you prefer. Yeah. And,
0: look, Amazon's pretty good. So even if you go to the Aussie website, like it will always pop up and say, this is a different region. Do you want to go to your own? And you just click that and it will take you to the right one. Yeah, I
1: have issues with that. Ah. Um, That's that's happened to me as well. I don't know if it was just too too new, like it hadn't. So it seems like it may have sorted out, but I just wanted to mention that because a lot of people had tried to purchase the book and it wouldn't let them because they were in the wrong region um, and it didn't automatically direct them or give them that pop up. So if if it doesn't do that, just search for the title and it will pop up awesome well thank you so
0: much for coming on the show today and sharing such a wealth of information because I know it's just one of those topics that even if you hear about it before there's always something else that you can pick up so thanks again for coming on thank you so much for having me lots of fun thanks for listening into the podcast please hit subscribe to be updated for each time we release a new podcast